I think they were trying to make me cry one more week. Came prepared though. So. Let's just go to, to the word in prayer before we open up the word. To the Lord in prayer before we open up the word. Father, thanks for this day. Thanks for the opportunity to, to live out your word in our community. I just pray that we will have a great impact in Midland through through Life Clinic, through supporting it, through giving supplies that they need, through ministering to people. Lord, I pray as a church that as we move forward that we will be leaning on you, that we will look to you and to you alone to solve our problems. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to be back. Um, last week I had wanted to say this, but I just was distracted by my emotions. But hasn't been great to hear men like Greg and Pastor Chuck and Dan speak to us. It's it never ceases to amaze me. <clears throat> it never ceases to amaze me the, the gifts that God pours out to his church that People from various backgrounds and various training um, can stand up because they're gifted by God and can share the word. And so that's, it's just a privilege for me to be a part of that group of men who are taking this short time to be able to share, to share with you God's word. So we've been in the book of Ephesians, and one of the tensions in preaching through a book is at times I think we can look at the book kind of atomistically. In other words, we look at the little parts and we kind of forget how it fits into the whole. And the, the book of Ephesians is really interesting because it seems to zoom in to the individual and then out to the church as a whole, to zoom into the individual and zoom back out to the church as a whole. And the, the bottom line is the church is an organism. We talk about it as an organism or a community And there's some really important things that Paul and God want us to learn about the church as a community. But then there's also the part of we're also a community of individuals. So if you don't have the individual functioning properly, then the community can't function properly. So there's this, there needs to be a kind of a zooming in and a, and then a pulling out to see the big picture and then a zooming in and pulling out to see the big picture. And today we're going to, kind of zoom out in this text because this text deals with the church as a whole. The first half of, of the chapter two really dealt with the individual as an individual person who needs grace. And that individual person then who receives grace has a right relationship with God and then is given a life full of good works that they have to perform that God's literally prepared ahead of time for them to find. And now he's going to kind of zoom back out and talk about the church as a whole. Remember, the, the whole book really is about church, the body of Christ. And even in chapter 1, we saw that the church in Christ is it's the, literally the focal point of human history. That in Christ, God sums up all of the ages and all of the things. And he puts him as head of the church and he rules at the right hand of God 
over his body, the church. Thank you. And God is there ruling over us as a whole right now. Now, that doesn't take away the individual part, right? We're individually, we're called, we're drawn, we're saved. We have a responsibility to live in obedience. But we also have this corporate responsibility. And, and I think in America, right, we're kind of known, America's known around the world as being a country of rugged individualists. And at times we can be too atomistic and we can be too fragmented. And there's times that we need to be reminded that we're part of this community called the church, the body of Christ. And we talked about extensively over the last number of weeks that have been preaching and through Ephesians, the fact that there was this conflict in the church, that the we referred to in chapters one and two refers to the Jewish Christians, and that the you referred to in the first chapters deals with the Gentile Christians. And last week we saw it start to come to a head where Paul is reminding those Jewish believers that they have no reason for arrogance. There's no reason for arrogance. And so he says, he says to that group that you were saved by grace just like the Gentiles. So now what he's going to do is he's going to kind of take that to the next step. And he's going to say, now as a church, I want you to know this, that you are a complete unity. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. The big idea today is from, from Ephesians chapter 2 is that the church is a complete unity. So I want to talk about that in kind of three phases. So in, in Christ, the church is a complete unity. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, we're going to see that Gentiles were far from God. The Gentiles were far from God. Then in verses 13 through 18, we're going to see that in Christ, Gentile Christians are now near. And then third, we're going to see in verses 19 through 22 that Jewish and Gentile Christians are now a complete unity. So one of the things that can help us when we're doing personal Bible study is it can help to find some of the key kind of words that frame sections. So what, what you'll notice in this section of chapter 2 is that there's a you were and then you're now are, and there's going to be a therefore. Okay, there's going to be uh, you were, and there's going to be then now you are, and there's going to be a therefore with some implications of that. So let's read down through the text together, and you'll see what I mean. In verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, in other words, therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Christ, the church is a complete unity. In Ephesus, it was not a functioning unity. There was division. There was disagreement. There was conflict. There was arrogance. And so... Here, we're going to see some of the historical reason for that being played out here in chapter 2. So first, Gentiles were far from God, verses 11 and 12. Notice what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, these are very true statements, but these are the kinds of statements that were taken by the, Gentile, the Jewish believers excuse me, in Ephesus and were used against them. So the truth of the matter was, apart from Christ, the Gentiles were lacking in these five things. Notice, too, that he calls them uncircumcised. So that wasn't just a fact. That was a judgment. If you've read through your Old Testament, you've probably read through a lot of times, uh, especially in, in, in battle, something like King David would say, you uncircumcised Philistine. Right? That was not a positive statement. That was an insult, and it was a basically calling them pagans. Because for Israel, circumcision was a sign of their belief in God. But over time, it stopped just being a sign of their belief and it started to become not just a badge, but a prerequisite for being right with God. So that many who would read that statement by, say, someone like David in the Old Testament, say, you uncircumcised Philistine, they took that as it, it was a necessary precondition to be right with God was to be circumcised. So if you wanted to be a full, equal access believer in Yahweh in the Old Testament, you were expected to be circumcised. And it became a prerequisite, and therefore it became an insult. So that in the church, even if you think about the book of Acts, one of the biggest problems or questions in the book of Acts was, what do we do with circumcision? Is this prerequisite to becoming a Christian? Do you have to become Jewish to become a Christian? Or can you just be a Gentile Christian? And so you can hear the Gentile, excuse me, the Jewish believers in Ephesus looking down their nose at their fellow congregants saying, look, you're not circumcised. You've got problems. But notice what he says. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul's downplaying circumcision here. Because circumcision is not a prerequisite for being right with God. 
Circumcision is not a prerequisite for being right with God. No external acts that we do, anything like baptism, right? anything like taking communion, those are not things that bring salvation to us. Those are things we do because we are saved. And that's the temptation that we can have sometimes as people who read the scriptures is to mistake what is a sign of salvation and what is a cause of salvation. But notice what he says. He does say that. He says the so-called circumcision. The New Testament and in fact the Old Testament actually emphasized internal circumcision or circumcision of the heart. So let's go back for a second to Romans chapter 4. I want to take you to a passage that's really, really important to help us think about circumcision and its relationship to salvation. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is basically taking, he's in 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, he's basically taken salvation and described justification by faith. Then in chapter 4, what he's going to do is he's going to prove justification by faith in the Old Testament. And as part of that, he's going to talk about the proper understanding of circumcision. So this is what he says in verse 9 of chapter 4, speaking of salvation. Is this blessing that is talking about salvation then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So do you see what Paul's doing here? He says, very basic timeline argument. Abraham, the father of the faith, was saved how? By righteousness. Romans 15.6 is probably a passage that every believer should know. Romans, uh, excuse me, Genesis 15.6 says this. And he, Abraham, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. Was he circumcised at that time, Paul asks? No. Why? Because in Genesis 15, Abraham is saved. Abraham is not circumcised until two chapter years later he's circumcised as a sign as an external sign of what happened to him internally so there's a external manifestation of what was happening internally and circumcision was never ever ever an issue of salvation it was always an issue of showing that you're a believer now That's really not an issue today in the modern church, but we do have lots of people who try to add conditions to salvation, do they not? First, you have to be baptized, or right afterwards, you're not saved if you're not baptized. Titus 3.5 says this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So there's no external work of righteousness that contributes to our salvation. Well, then what's baptism today? Baptism is an external manifestation or a testimony that we've been saved and we want to live our life for God. What is communion that we're going to do in a few minutes? It's a testimony and a memorial to what happened at the cross and what happened in our lives when we accepted Christ as our Savior. There's nothing salvific about what's going to go on here today. 
So if you're, maybe you're here today and you've thought, oh, why am I a Christian? Uh, well, I've done that. I've come to church. Oh, I've, I've done the baptism thing. Oh, I do communion all the time. If that's what you're here believing, let me challenge you. That doesn't work. That's not how God calls. God calls you to humbly repent, admit that nothing you can do can accomplish your salvation. And then you repent and turn your life over to Jesus and ask him for that free gift. That's how God calls us to be saved. And before, before Christ, that's where the Gentiles were. There's five things, and I'm not going to go into big detail on them, but there's five things mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 2 that made Gentiles different from the Jews in the Old Testament. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separated from the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's not a good situation, is it? Verse 13, though, I love it. But now in Christ, right? A contrast word shows a change in topic. This is the reality that was, but now. So now we have in Christ and Gentiles are now near. And I chose that word are now near because that's the kind of the metaphorical language Paul uses in the beginning of this section. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he took people who were far off and he's able to bring them near. Now think about that language, far and near. That's not just space language, that's relational language. Do you ever feel far away, feel far away from somebody when you're in the same room with them? Okay. Or you can feel close to somebody. Right? You can be far away from someone geographically or physically, and you can feel close to them. Right? So this is not just space language. This is actually a, a kind of relational language here that's being used. And what Paul then does in 14 through 18 is he follows through and describes all of the how and the why this happened. So what's he say? But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now that is a really confusing statement. What is this hostility? Literally, the, the term is enmity, right? Enmity is not a word that we're used to using. Hostility is a really good translation for that. It's conflict. It's the standing State of being an enemy with somebody. It's this hostility. Remember that in the Old Testament, Gentiles were, even if they were related to God, were they equal citizens or were they second class citizens? They were second class citizens, right? Why was that? This text blames the Old Covenant. This text blames the Old Covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look what it says. But in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there's this dividing wall that's hostility. That doesn't say the what yet. 
Well, what's he say next? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, we need to be really careful here when we talk about this because there's four different ways that the, the, the Bible talks about the word law. There's a few more, but four really main ways. One is just talking about the word law as in a general principle or a basic fundamental um, statement of morality, right? A general rule or principle. The second way that it's used is the Pentateuch, the law and the prophets, right? The law refers to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes when the Bible says law, it's talking about those five books. And sometimes it's the third definition, which is the moral laws, something that we consider like the old, uh, not the old commandments, excuse me, the, the 10 commandments, the principles of law, the moral law that God lays down in the universe. And then there's a fourth way that it's being used here. And it's being used this way here. It's the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. And I know I'm getting technical here and I don't want to get too deep, but I just want to help you understand what this text is saying. He's saying, look, the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant had built into it a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And that was God's plan for that time. Galatians says that the old covenant was the tutor to lead us up to the Christ. But once you are at Christ, then you no longer need the tutor. And so the old covenant is replaced by the new. And we no longer have this wall of hostility that breaks us or divides us apart. And so now in the church, you have Jew and Gentile coming together into one new body. A complete unity. He says it's making peace. And might, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So this hostility, this dividing wall is completely gone because now instead of having the old covenant, we have the new covenant which circumcises our hearts and makes us new and makes, it able, makes us able to obey the Lord. And it makes us able to love one another despite any and all differences that we might have. Look, that's a really complex topic. And if you have questions about it, want to talk about it, let's talk about it sometime. But I'm just trying to quickly as possible summarize that for you so we can understand what Paul's trying to tell us. But there's no more room for distinction in the church. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because we have the same spirit, we now have access, equal access to the Father. And look at the Old Testament language here. I love this language. You are no longer strangers and aliens. So strangers is not talking about people you don't know. That's a very specific Old Testament term referring to resident aliens of a foreign country. Remember, Abraham was a stranger and an alien. So what that means is you're living in a foreign country with no legal rights. 
you know, most countries don't have a bill of rights like the United States. And so if you were to go to a third world country that doesn't have a well-established rule of law, you're taking your life into your own hands. Abraham lived as a stranger and an alien in a foreign country his whole life. Remember what he had to do when Sarah died? He had to buy a burial plot. He had to buy a burial plot. Genesis 23, the whole book is about Abraham going and buying a burial plot so that he can bury Sarah. Because he's a stranger and an alien in a foreign land. And that's what Gentiles were if they converted to Judaism. They were like those strangers and aliens. But no longer, you are fully a citizen, he says. I love this. Look in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Completely equal. Completely equal. Jumped ahead. I got so excited, jumped ahead to point three. Jewish and Gentile Christians are now a complete unity. Starting in verse 19, which we just started to talk about. So now the church is this complete unity. So he uses a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery here. Strangers and aliens now completely co-equal. Lest you think this is just some merely some continuation of the Old Testament, there's something new about the church. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there is some kind of discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so much so that the church is called not a continuation of the Old Testament, but one new body. And it's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. Now, don't have time to go there this morning. I want to make sure we have time for communion. But if you look in chapter three, you'll see that the built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is not talking about Old Testament prophets. It's actually talking about New Testament prophets. And Christ being the cornerstone, it makes sense. This church is this one new body, this one new temple. Look in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not only does he call us co-equals as fellow members of the citizenship or the politeia, the political body of Israel. He says that you are this new temple. So what's really cool about this passage is it's talking about not us individually as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's actually talking about us as a church. Together we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's two ways that the New Testament kind of plays with the Old Testament theme of temple. We're individually called temples of the Holy Spirit. And that gives us individually access to God. But that's not what this is talking about here. This passage is talking about the fact that together, we as a community are being built up as a temple to God. 
So not only do I have personal responsibility as a holy place and a access point for myself to reach and communicate with God and commune with God, I have a responsibility as a member of a group of people who together constitute a place where the Holy Spirit resides. There's something different about when the church gets together. It's not just a bunch of people in the same room. There's something deeply spiritual about what God is doing in church. We together are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's sobering, is it not? So when I stand here, there is a deep responsibility on my part if I'm opening the word to fellow members of a temple to the Holy Spirit, a temple to God, there's some deep responsibility. When you sit in here, you have a deep responsibility to function as part of the temple. When you're here in small church, when you're doing life group, we're just smaller manifestations of small mini temples of Midland Evangelical Free Church. And together with all the other true churches of God in the world, we're all this massive temple to the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, the temple to God through the Holy Spirit. You get the idea that we're one? You get the idea that we're one? Now let me make a suggestion, because I didn't talk about this on purpose, but did you notice what word this whole passage started with? Somebody say it out loud for me. 2.11 starts with, therefore. That means there's some reason it's connected to the previous verse. I'm going to make a suggestion to you. Look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he goes on and says, these are some good works that you can do. You can function in his body, the temple, the church. Do you see? You say, well, what good works does God have prepared ahead of time for me to be involved with? One of the main things is being a unified church, a functioning church, a church that's being built up by You and me rubbing shoulders, talking, encouraging, praying, singing. I almost entitled this message, God's greatest good work for us. But I don't think it's the greatest. This is just the one he's emphasizing here. But this is an important thing. If we want to know how important this church unity thing is, it's one of the good works that God's got prepared for us to be involved with. And that's a responsibility for me. And it's a responsibility for you. So let let me take just three applications here before we move to communion. You know, there's no real 100% parallel in today's culture between the Jew-Gentile division. But it's kind of racial, right? It's kind of racial. If you think about the fact that the church is the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one, there was no more racial categories. God said he's going to bring together people from every tribe and every nation to worship him. There's no room for racism in the church, period. There's no room for it. Why? We are together 
completely equal before God. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. And frankly, the term race as we use it today isn't even a biblical concept because Acts basically says this, from one man, God made all of the ethne. From one man, God made all nations. There's no race. We're all one human race. There's no races, excuse me. There's just one human race. So I have a friend who's a pastor down southern Michigan, and they have an African-American couple that attends their church who shared the story about the church search they did right before they came to his church. They were, like I said, a black couple, and they were looking for Temple Baptist Church. Right? And there's Temple Baptist, I'm sorry, no, it was Emmanuel Baptist Temple and Emmanuel Baptist Church. There we go, get this right. Emmanuel Baptist Church sounds a little more white, and it was. And then you had Emmanuel Baptist Temple, and that sounds a little more black. If you know much about black churches in America, they often have the word temple in them. And this black couple was purposely going to visit Emmanuel Baptist Church, and they came up to be greeted. And they said, oh, what brought you here? And he said, well, we're looking for Emmanuel Baptist Church. Something to that effect. And the usher said, oh, I think you're looking for Emmanuel Baptist Temple. That's down the road. And yes, they got the message. Right? They got the message. There's no room for that. There's absolutely no room for that. That's vile and evil, and God would hate that. Let's... Not be that kind of a church. Second, more generally, will you work? Will you work for the unity of the church? Are you willing to deal with the natural conflict that happens when you rub shoulders with people and have differences of opinion? Maybe they do something accidentally that hurts your feelings. Are you willing to forgive? Let's be really honest. This could be a really, really tough time for our church moving forward. We've got lots of issues to deal with, including lead pastor. I want to tell you guys something. I am committed. I am committed to be a part of this church, even if whoever the lead pastor is, isn't my first choice. Are you? I'm committed to this church because God's brought me here to minister however he wants to, for me to minister. And if it doesn't go what I might consider my way, I'm not gonna take my ball and I'm not gonna go home because God's called me to this church. Now, if God calls you to a different church, God bless you. But if you're here, let's fight for the unity of the church. And then the third thing, will you be the church? Will you be the church? What does that mean? It means engagement. It means not just being a consumer. It means coming in. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't, look, I'm not up here trying to whip people into serving more. That's not my point. If God calls you to serve, we want you to serve. But are you going to engage? Are you going to become a functioning member by being part of a life group where you can encourage others and be encouraged by others? 
where you can actually have more time where you can get into the nitty gritty of the Christian life and you can really get into people's lives. And yes, it can be messy and yes, it can be ugly, but that's the beauty of the church. God's designed it to function this way. Maybe you need to become a part of a life group or a small church, or maybe you do need to find some area to serve in this church. So my question would be, will you be the church? Will you be the church? So as we kind of transition to communion, there's no such thing as circumcised or uncircumcised anymore in the church. We're a unity. God calls us to be one. God calls us because of his work on the cross to be a unity. And let's express that unity together in communion. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You're kind. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're way more patient with us than you should be, than you need to be. And we're grateful. Lord, we love you. And we look forward to taking communion together. For this in Jesus' name, amen.